there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again, and it's an incredible honor to have inventor and philanthropist Dean Kamen with us for the entire podcast today. Dean, welcome to Next Steps Forward for what I'm sure is going to be an enlightening and entertaining program. It's always good to be talking with you, and it's great <laughs> to have the opportunity to talk about something as important as taking the next step forward. Now, I know how busy you are, and so truly appreciate you taking the time out. For those who are unfamiliar with Dean, Dean Kamen is one of the most recognized and sought-after innovators of our time. He's made it his life's work to invent technology that improves the lives of others. Dean is the founder and president of DECA Research and Development Corporation. You've heard of, and maybe even used, some of the technologies he has developed. Among his 1,000-plus U.S. and international patents are the Home Choice Portable Dialysis Machine, a robotic arm funded by the federal government's Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, a new and improved Sterling engine, the Slingshot water purifier, the iBot mobility system, and the Segway human transporter. Dean Kamen has received many awards for his ingenuity and dedication, including the National Medal of Technology in 2000, which was presented by President Clinton in recognition for inventions that have advanced medical care worldwide, and the Lemelson MIT Prize in 2002. He's been a member of the National Academy of Engineering since 1997 and was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2005. He is a fellow of the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering and many other national and international engineering organizations. Dean, congratulations on all you've accomplished. Thank you. you know, those credentials alone account for Dean's iconic status in the science and technology communities and beyond. But he's also a passionate advocate for finding enjoyment in science and sharing the gratification of innovation with the next generation. Dean is a leading voice inspiring future innovators and encouraging others to understand and listen to science. Among his proudest accomplishments is founding FIRST, which stands for For Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology, and FIRST Global, two organizations dedicated to motivating the next generation to understand, use, and enjoy science and technology. Now, Dean, when we spoke last week, I know you want to focus a lot of our time and discussion on FIRST Robotics, and I promise we'll do that. But I think we really need to have to start with, with your work. You know, what got you into science and, and inventing? And you know, did you have a specific mentor? Was there a particular experience or some combination of both? I wish I could tell you I had some well-defined, vast plan as a kid. In fact, I think part of the problem I had with school and, and to this day uh, uh, is history always shows a neat, straight line uh, in the process of developing anything, individuals, organizations, cultures. In reality, I don't think it's really that way with anybody, and certainly with me. Life was a chaotic set of events, and I would seize opportunities as they came along. I would be affected by uh, the serendipity of various events. But as I look back over my life, including right back to when I was a student, I never did have a plan. I would just uh, always be passionate about something I was doing. I would seize an opportunity and move forward. Uh, as, as a few basic examples, while I was still in high school, my older brother, who's a 
well-organized, detailed. Maybe he did have better plans than I did. Uh, MD, PhD candidate, ended up as a professor of medicine, Yale University, a brilliant guy. And it already started his research as an undergrad in dealing with pediatric cancers. I mean, babies, neonates uh, with terrible diseases like cancer. And he was coming up with ways to treat them. But many of these babies weighed only a few pounds and there wasn't equipment to deliver drugs to a baby that small. You can't put an IV bottle on, on the baby. He'd come home on the weekends frustrated that he couldn't do his work. I'd get down in my parents' basement and build him devices that would allow him to deliver precision amounts over precision schedules by taking tiny syringes, building them into a little device uh, and, and delivered it to him. That wasn't a business plan. Uh, that was a brother that needed help to save ba babies that desperately needed help. Now it turned out he was very proud of these little boxes. And by the way, to prove it was not a business, I can assure you brothers don't pay you anything. Um, but he would show it to his professors at Harvard, where he was doing a guest residency at a very you know, prestigious medical school, at Yale and wherever he went. And the docs at these places, and some of them world-renowned researchers and clinicians would see this little battery-operated thing that I built for him to put in an isolate with a baby with a rare disease. These docs would say, wait a minute, that little battery-operated delivery system, an adult could put that in his or her pocket and walk around getting getting medication all day long. And where is an application for that back 40 years ago? How about, unlike the rare diseases of, of pediatric cancer, the most common need for chronic delivery of a drug is diabetes and insulin. Well, a few of those docs called me, asked if I could modify it to be optimized for, for instance, insulin. And it literally created an industry. I had to eventually move out of the, my parents' basement, start a company which was called Auto Syringe. That would, that would chronically deliver precise uh, microdoses of, of insulin. And then from there, as more and more people saw these delivery systems I was making, I started building different kinds and more of them and eventually started building dialysis equipment. But none of that was some big strategic plan. It was me reacting to somebody that had a need and trying to figure out what technology that was currently available would soon be practical that I could do a systems integration, put it together, solve a real problem. And in the end, as a byproduct of doing that, uh, it turns out uh, you could make a profit, which could ensure your independence and allow me to keep going and, uh, and grow a business. And that's what I've been doing for now four decades. With 1,000 plus patents to your name, well, obviously we could talk about them for days. But I'm especially intrigued with your earliest or maybe one of your earliest projects, you know, you're talking about while you were still a college undergraduate, you invented the first wearable infusion pump that rapidly gained acceptance. Uh, you talked about me diverse medical specialties as oncology, neonatology, endocrinology. How does an undergrad decide to invent the first wearable infusion pump and then actually go and do it? So as I said, I was building them as kind of one-off little devices to help my brother in his research. But as he started showing it to the docs at the various medical school he was uh, at, they would uh, call me and ask if I could modify it. And essentially, uh, they didn't realize it, but they were essentially doing all the hardest work of an inventor. They were very carefully articulating a very specific problem statement. And I long ago realized that half of good inventing is making sure you have properly defined a problem that really needs to be solved. 
And so I would listen to these docs and realize that uh, what they needed was something small, reliable, programmable for whether, as you just said, whether it was for insulin or chemotherapy or any other kind of medical uh, need they had, I would listen carefully to what they wanted. I would go back and I would build what I thought was an engineering solution to their clinical need. I would deliver it to them and I'd ask a very subtle secret question like, is this what you need? Uh, And if their answer was yes, but, I would listen to the but and modify it. If they said, yes, this is perfect, I would go back and start building more of them. The answer to the question, again, how did I turn that into a business? I had roommates. I had uh, students that I was getting to know both in high school. I set up a little assembly line in my parents' basement for my brother's units. And when I moved on to college, I started working with other students at, at the college and then uh, rented some space and actually hired some of the professors that were at that school because I was having trouble trying to go to class as well as run my business. So I would hire the professors for nights and weekends to both help me uh, get the products developed. But in the process, I was learning in the real world how to do the electrical engineering, the mechanical engineering, the systems engineering. And as each project got done, I would have a broader group of uh, experiences. I'd have a larger group of uh, people that I was working with, either as consultants or finally as employees. And to this day, we do it that way. I have about 800 professional people up here now at DECA, but we still pretty much do the same thing. We don't have a big marketing department or a sales department. We talk to the people that have a need. We figure out whether there's technologies out there now that could be a huge answer to that need that's better than the currently available answers. And if the answer is, yeah, we really understand the need, and yes, there's better technologies these days than what's being deployed, we bring all the technical resources together to build that new solution and deliver it to the people that need it. You know, it's very rare to find you know somebody like yourself and your colleagues with such tremendous business and technological acumen. And so you, you've obviously built a, a phenomenal franchise. And so it's just incredible here you know, how things started, you know, in your basement, kind of like a, an Apple type idea. Uh, it's now being world renowned and, and having phenomenal uh, assets that you've developed. You talked briefly earlier about uh, your first company, Auto Syringe Incorporated, uh, which was to manufacture and market those pumps. Then Correct. working with lean diabetes researchers, you pioneered the design and the adoption of the first portable insulin pump, which quickly proved it could much more effectively control patients' blood glucose levels. At age 30, you sold Auto Syringe to Baxter Healthcare Corporation. You know, a lot of people might have just called it a career at that point. Uh, you know, what is it about inventors or you in particular that keeps you going to new frontiers rather than saying, you know, I've accomplished more than most people in a lifetime. I'm good. That's it for me. Well, in the first place, uh, even if I had decided, yeah, I, I did enough work. That's it for me. What I would want to do the next day is essentially uh, follow a passion or a hobby which is indistinguishably different than what I'd been doing until then. I love understanding physics, mathematics, the principles of engineering. Then I love figuring out how to apply those laws of physics and those rules of engineering to actually make things. But if you're going to make things, which is fun to do anyway, I'd rather make things that can help people than be some kind of a toy or or consumer product that's going to end up in a landfill soon. I'd rather work on... uh, 
building stuff that I know in the end could really help people live a better life. So yes, you're right. At the age of about 30, when I sold that company, I didn't sell it because I was trying to retire. I sold it because as it grew, I went from a few people doing the design and the development and talking to the docs about what their needs are. Uh, it went from that few people to now I need more people to manufacture and then more and more people to manufacture and then worry about supply chain and then worry about going to the medical shows and worrying about all the other stuff that you need to do when you're running a business. It's hard work to run a business and it takes a lot of focus and and skill and discipline. I'm not really good at focus and discipline. <laughs> and I decided that, you know what, there are big companies out there that are really good at that. They have global reach. Uh, they can more effectively get to the people that need it because they can spread the cost of marketing and sales across a much broader portfolio of their products. What maybe those big companies aren't as good at is thinking out of the box, coming up with the next thing. After all, if they're focused on supplying the thing they're making now and it's meeting a need and they're making money, uh, you can understand why they wouldn't be focusing on what's the next thing, which, which might uh, make that one less relevant. Um, so I decided, having sold that company, that's one of the reasons I sold it was, why don't I just stay focused on what we tend to enjoy doing that we're good at which is trying to create the next thing. And once I get it to a place where it's, it's scalable and it can work, then I'll partner with these big companies because while I'm very, I think, good and keep getting more focused on front-end development, um, we never got really good at the end, which is do all that support. And uh, these big companies are particularly good at that. They're very disciplined. They're very process-driven. So I did sell the company, but it, was, it never crossed my mind. It, it was because I was going to quit or retire. It was by selling the company, A, it gave me a lot of resources that I could focus on building what, uh, in fact, he once visited here and Bill Gates uh, at the end of the day, walking around here. Uh, and my home said, Dean, the only way I can describe this place is it's a cross between a museum of science and technology and Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> and, and what my my life is about is, is looking at various kinds of technologies, many of which are evolving in real time as we sit here, and figuring out how to uniquely apply them to meet the kinds of needs that are particularly uh, important to people uh, with medical issues. You know, everybody knows the Segway, and they think I set out one day to build this, quote, human transport of the Segway. In fact, for four or five years before anybody saw a segue, I was working on yet another one of our medical problems. Namely, uh, the wheelchair has been around for a couple of hundred years, but the wheelchair is a pretty pathetic answer, alternative when you no longer can stand up and you no longer can walk. I mean, in a wheelchair, you can't even have an eye-level conversation with your peers, your husband, your wife, colleagues. In a wheelchair, you can't even go up a curb, never mind a flight of stairs. So I realized way back then that, that the world of solid state gyroscopes and accelerometers uh, and, and high performance servo motors and high energy density batteries were all coming into being at the same time. And with those gyros, I could essentially do what your inner ear does uh, to allow you to balance and, and all the rest of the technologies that were becoming more and more available and reliable for the same reason you could build drones and you could build 
uh, all sorts of autonomous uh, devices. I said, why don't we build a device that can emulate human balance, that can put a human on two little points on two wheels that are where your, your feet would be. And because it's balancing, you could let somebody stand six feet high. And uh, when it gets to a curb or a stair, it can, what we call cluster up and down those stairs, and it would give dignity and access and independence to the whole disabled community with the first real improvement over the wheelchair in 200 years. But we worked for years on figuring out how to do that. And it was a medical project, like most of everything else we do. But once we got it to where we knew it could work, we said, you know what, to get the volume of the components high enough in the manufacturing environment to drive the cost of building these things down, because fortunately there are millions of people uh, that, that would need an iBot, this device for the disabled community. But I said, millions of people would want to stand on a platform that can simulate human balance. Basically, we said, take everything we had developed and learned about balance and servos and gyros and accelerometers, let's put them in a platform. And but since it's for an able-bodied person, we don't need the seat, we don't need the cluster, we'll just build a device that a person can essentially stand on and, and, and move around, uh, i.e. the Segway, in a pedestrian environment. But because it was, uh, let's say, uh, more visually appealing than an iBot to a much broader group of people, even though we started it four or five years after the iBot, because it's not a class three medical device, it's a simple subset of the iBot, um, I instantly became known as the Segway guy, even though everything else we do is, is medical. And even the Segway came from its medical, uh, it, it descended from the iBot. And I'm happy to tell you, we're now making iBots the next generation. We delivered a few of them to, uh, particularly I'm proud of this, to a number of Medal of Honor recipients and a number of veterans that literally gave their legs uh, for this country. And we're now giving them back their independence with our new iBot. Well, that was a long answer to your question. I'll shut up. I don't know. That's, that's perfect. And as someone who's had the privilege of uh, visiting your facility, I think Bill Gates' description is, is spot on. Uh, and also, you know, when I was with you, I did try out the iBot. And for our listeners and viewers, I'm 6'3", 200 pounds and was in the iBot. And I couldn't push Dean over uh, and the device. And so uh, <clears throat> it truly is a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of equipment. And I do know how proud you are in terms of the work you're doing with the veterans, the Medal of Honor recipients, and I'm happy to talk more about that. Uh, but I have a quick question for our listeners and our viewers to watch on YouTube. We talked briefly before the show about the painting over your shoulder uh, with Einstein on the Segway. Just want to tell folks briefly about that. So my dad is an artist. Uh, before I was born, um, he, he grew up in, in New York and became a uh, illustrator for the comic book industry. Shock horror, suspense, tales from the crypt, all the EC comics. Um, but he then married my mom, uh, who decided um, my father could move on from being an illustrator of comic books to uh, an illustrator of, at, at a different uh, corporate level. And, uh, and he remained for the rest of his life uh, an independent uh, artist and illustrator. And um, by the time he reached, oh, probably 65 or so, I had moved out of New York up to New Hampshire. I, I moved my parents up here after uh, I had the resources to do that. My mom retired from teaching, but stayed on keeping the books and, and being a, 
the, the accountant for my little company, DECA, and my dad uh, made all the artwork for all of our uh, rooms, pure artwork, and he did all the graphics for all of our products. And so I started developing these old mills in Manchester, the one I'm sitting in right now, you can see the brick behind me. Well, the front of this building has a stair tower. This building was built in, in 1874. It was, it was a building on this river. I'm looking out the river now at the Merrimack River. And it was one of the many buildings, big brick uh, mill buildings that operated the largest single uh, industrial complex in the country at that time making uh, textiles. Anyway, after the Great Depression, they all ended up empty. I moved up here, started renovating them. I moved DECA into uh, this one and, and started spreading it out. I now have about a million square feet of these mills all along this river. But my dad, who had a little uh, uh, you know, office here and would do work for all of our projects, when we uh, launched the Segway, and my father knows I've got, I've got Oh, portraits of Einstein all over this building and all over my house. He likes doing portraits. I like hanging Einstein portraits. He has such a unique face. My father took a model of the Segway. He put it in a piece of artwork he did with the front stair tower of this building. That in, in that artwork, that's the 1874 building. That's the building I'm sitting in right now. But he made that picture of of Einstein on a Segway cruising around my mill yard. And it became something that so many people at Segway loved. We ended up making a poster out of it. And it almost became the symbol in the early days of, of the whole Segway uh, uh, project. I love it. I love it. So we've talked about the iBot, the Segway, your medical devices, a lot of different things I understand, but the major focus in the, in the medical industry, where does your inspiration come from? And how do you capture it in a way that once you're able to advance the next step in that creativity process? So I think inspiration is, um, it's, it's what drives almost everybody I know that does something extraordinary. It's funny, I think, and again, the business school people always are looking for some surefire pathway to success, or they want to teach people how to succeed. Everybody says they want to succeed, and they always want to make it uh, easy and fast and low risk. And they therefore try to give you some skill set, a technical skill or a human skill. I don't know. But I've now watched a couple of generations grow up. I've watched a lot of successful people. And I will tell you, there's no commonality except for one among them all that, that succeed at doing something really new and big and different. And it's not how fundamentally smart they are. It's not how well educated they are. It's not uh, their family background. The only characteristic that I see consistent among all these people is that they're inspired to do something and they have such passion because of that inspiration that they're willing to risk. They're willing to fall down. They're willing to pick themselves up and keep trying. They, they just never, never give up. And and I, the only explanation I have for why other people and frankly why I don't give up on something is because I'm inspired that if this could only work, it could have a huge impact on people. It's important to do. And it's important enough that it is worth risking your time and resources and most of all your ego and your reputation 
Uh, most people are unwilling to fail. Most people are so risk averse, they only make incremental changes in what they do every day to avoid risk. And most people are successful at avoiding that risk and they move through life getting marginally better and marginally stronger every day. But the same consequence of taking small enough steps that you don't fail has the unintended consequence that you'll probably never make the big leap that you might have made if you were inspired to just let go and, and have at it. You've talked about collaborating on projects earlier on the show, and just now you mentioned inspiration and passion. Are those the two key elements you look at when you're thinking about somebody to collaborate with? Are there other traits that depend on the, on the project you're working on? So I typically don't depend on our partners for the inspiration. I think they depend on us for that. Uh, I like to find those big partners, as I said before, uh, that have the things we don't have that you really need to bring things to scale. Big organizations are really good at scaling things up and leveraging uh, scale. Um, I think that's very important once you know what it is you're trying to scale. But again, a big organization uh, has all sorts of systems in place to prevent failure. And most of them are pretty successful, which is why you see most big organizations run in a very methodical way like clockwork. But again, an unintended consequence of having that, that great process in place that prevents them from a surprise failure also <laughs> prevents them from a surprise uh, big uh, breakthrough. Um, so I think we don't look for people uh, to give us that out of the box thinking, that big breakthrough idea. We like to go to the big guys and say, supposing we can do this, Supposing I can demonstrate that this might happen. Now, truth be told, I'll probably fail nine times before I get in the 10th one, a way to, to demonstrate that we've lowered the risk. We've learned how to do it. This thing is now ready for prime time. It's ready to scale up. And then we hand it over to the big guys. And hopefully uh, uh, their expertise will allow us to take something that might have uh, ended up as a really neat science fair project and turn it into something that can you know, help the lives of millions of people, whether it's people with diabetes or people that need dialysis or people that need mobility or people that need clean water, uh, or in the case of first, kids that need to have their, their focus and their passion uh, turned on at an early age so that they can themselves develop the skill sets to have exciting careers. This is Next Steps Forward. We're with inventor and philanthropist Dean Kamen. I'm Chris Meek, and we'll be right back after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info 
at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, we are back with Dean Kamen. Dean is the inventor, among many things, of the Segway, the iBot, many medical devices, um, but I think what he's most proud of is being a philanthropist. Uh, His goal is really to inspire kids to develop the same love for science and technology that he possesses. Dean, I promised you in the show that we talk about first, and I'm a man of my word, so let's talk about first, which as I mentioned before, is short for for inspiration and recognition of science and technology. Can you tell our listeners when, why, and how it got started? So first of all, Chris, thank you, thank you, thank you. Giving me the opportunity to spread the word about first, so hopefully more parents, more teachers, more mentors, more sponsors, and ultimately more kids is, is a great opportunity. But I have to fix one thing you said, I'm a philanthropist. And whether I'm a philanthropist in some way related to other things or not, I don't know. But I would differentiate first from being a philanthropy to it's about the best investment a society can make. And I started first entirely with enlightened self-interest. I want to retire in a country uh, that has a standard of living that I was accustomed to as I grew up. I want to be in, a, in an environment where young people are smart, enthusiastic, positive. And, and you can only be optimistic if you believe 
that you're going to have a good life I mean, relative to what's around you. Everybody in every generation before us has always said their kids should do better than, than they did. And it was pretty much true. But all of a sudden, at least as I was growing up, we started to see cracks. Uh, we started to see the disparity, the haves and the have-nots. And there were all sorts of people that were coming up with all sorts of excuses or explanations or patches or band-aids for how to fix it. And it always seemed clear to me, you can't fix a problem like that uh, by putting a patch over it. Um, I think industry, even back 30 some odd years ago when I started first, was starting to recognize there would not be enough world-class scientists and engineers to keep these companies going and growing and being competitive in a global marketplace where the rest of the world is focused, typically like laser beams, on getting kids really smart and really capable. Um, our government people recognized it was a risk to our security, our, our fundamental security. I think every serious person I knew when I started first was already aware that this huge looming problem existed that fewer and fewer kids, particularly women and minorities, were even thinking about science and engineering and technology as a career. And even back then, it was at least clear to some of us that the future was going to eliminate most of the jobs that could easily be done uh, by, let's say, uh, machinery, robots, automation, and that the exciting careers uh, would be more exciting, but they'd also require uh, a higher level of skill. So uh, again, as I said before, I think a well-defined problem is, is half solved. And I think 30 some odd years ago, uh, this problem not only wasn't well-defined, I think it was misdiagnosed. Uh, and even to this day, a lot of people think we have an education crisis because we have so few kids, particularly women and minorities, studying math and science and going into engineering. Um, I said 35 years ago, more now, we don't have an education crisis. We have a culture crisis. My mom back then was a school teacher and she's still a teacher. I talked to her this morning and she reminds me every day she's a teacher and I better listen. But, but I think everybody I know, even all those people back then and today that claim we have, an education crisis, will always follow by saying, but they had great teachers and they learned that. Well, then what's the real story? Well, the whole inspiration, we talked about that too, the whole inspiration behind first, in fact, the word inspiration is the first word of it really, for inspiration and recognition of science and technology. Notice the word education is not in the name of this organization. 35 years ago, I said, huh, if we have a culture problem, not an education problem, if it's not that we don't have great schools and great teachers, but we don't have uh, kids that are desperate to get a great education, again, particularly women and minorities, because our culture steers them away from it. In many ways, it's an unintended consequence of, of what happened to our culture. But I said, let's assume the problem is, it's not the supply of education. It's not the lack of supply, it's the lack of demand. If we have a country where kids, by the time they're five, six, seven years old, uh, they can tell you the name of all sorts of superheroes from the NBA, the NFL, they can tell you about all sorts of 
uh, uh, role models and superstars of the music industry, of Hollywood. But you ask any of them, can you tell me the name of a famous living scientist or engineer? Can you tell me the name of a young, enthusiastic inventor that you see that you think, I, I, can, I can be like that person? There are none. They're not on the newsstand covers. They're not on TV. They're not in the shows. Um, so let's say 35 years ago, I said, all right, if it's a demand problem or lack of it and not a supply problem, let's figure out how to get these young kids as focused on developing that muscle hanging between their ears as, as all the others that they have. And again, I'll remind you that while I'm told I'm an inventor and I hear a lot of people think inventors start every new project with a clean piece of paper and invent from, you know, from scratch, whole cloth. That's crazy. People that try to do that are gonna fail. Yes, I made the segue. I didn't invent the wheel, the motor, the battery, the microprocessor, the solid state gyro. I just systems integrated things that worked to create something that didn't exist until I put them together. That's a shorter path. It's a lower risk path to get to a real solution. Well, once I realized that we have a culture problem, it's a lack of demand problem, not a supply problem. I didn't invent a way to create demand. I did what all good inventors do. I started with what we knew worked. Well, kids love sports. Kids love entertainment. We have an entire culture that's built around making superheroes for these kids. And these kids will put their heart and their soul and their passion, and they are inspired to become better at bouncing that ball. They'll practice four hours a day to get on that varsity team. Well, that'll make them better at that skill. But they don't see the varsity math or physics or engineering environment. They don't see anything particularly, again, I'll keep hammering away at that. Women and minorities don't see even a pathway to how exciting and how successful uh, their life and their career can be if they develop the skill sets uh, that are gonna be necessary to be engineers and scientists. So 35 years ago, I said, all I'm gonna do is take what I know works, sports and entertainment, and I'm gonna build into it the content being uh, the skill sets of engineering, of mathematics, of science, and I set out to create an organization, the singular goal would be to inspire all kids to see how accessible, how fun uh, it is to, to understand the laws of physics and to have the power of mathematics and the language of, of, of mathematics to define problems and then solve them with all sorts of cool technology. But as I started developing first, by the way, I realized how effective we have been as a culture unintentionally at, at stamping out any chance that kids will see science and engineering as exciting. I mean, look at it this way. You go into the average school and there's a teacher that during the day, it's their job to put a red mark on everything you got wrong, whether it was the wrong answer in math or the wrong spelling. It's their job. They're required to be judgmental and to tell you what's wrong and to give you a C or a D or that very same teacher at 3.30 turns his or her hat around and becomes the coach. And after school, they're nurturing. And if you strike and you miss it, oh, don't worry, it was a lucky point. Don't worry, we'll try again. And you don't get quizzes and tests and finals. You get trophies and letters and recognition. 
and you bring the mascots and the school band and the cheerleaders and everybody gets together to celebrate. In fact, the whole way we as a culture justify the enormous expense in schools, on school budgets, of having sports, we justify it all by explaining it's really important that kids learn teamwork. Well, then why, when you do it in the classroom, do you call it cheating? And, and so the more I thought about it, the more I was convinced if we could just take the entire, quote, playbook of sports, no quizzes, no tests, make it aspirational, make it after school, make it every day for hours if you want, not once a week on Thursday morning between phonics and spelling. You're not going to learn to love algebra or trigonometry or physics that way in a classroom where you get a little bit of it once in a while, and then you get tested on it. No, let's, let's put all of those skill sets to real practical use after school. It's like nobody wants to go to gym and do calisthenics for 45 minutes, but they'll play any sport hour after hour after school. So, so I built an entire model around saying everything that works about sports, make a short, intense season, six or eight weeks, like each season in, in, in school. Let's start it out by giving people uh, the playing field and a set of rules. Let's end it with double elimination tournaments and prizes and awards and recognition. And let's make it a total team building exercise, but we'll make it and, and I wasn't going to compete with science fairs. I wanted to compete for the hearts and minds of kids with the Super Bowl and the World Series. But I said, the only difference between my sport and all the other sports is my sport will be the only one where every kid on every team can turn pro. The average kid that spends hour after hour as they're growing up chasing whatever sport they happen to like is unlikely to ever make a career out of it. There aren't that many jobs in the NBA, and you better plan on being seven feet tall. There aren't that many jobs at the NFL, and you better plan on being 250 pounds. But, but there are millions of jobs out there right now for people that can write code or, or, or do engineering. And the number of new opportunities for jobs and careers and creating whole new industries is accelerating at an unbelievable pace. But all those kids that don't develop the skill sets and the passion and the confidence to be part of those in the future are, are going to have no shot at it. And, and, and that bus is picking up speed faster and faster and faster. And this current generation of kids is either going to be on that bus or under it. And they've got to develop uh, an appreciation for science and technology. And, and if they do, uh, they're going to have exciting lives and careers. Anyway, uh, so about 35 years ago, when I was looking at how to create a sport that would compete for the hearts and minds of all these kids, I realized I had one fundamental problem I'd have to overcome. And that is, you need superstars. Otherwise, in our free culture, kids are not going to do it. And again, a simple proof by example would be, um, in this country, uh, we get kids, we have very good football teams and basketball teams and baseball teams, you name it, all because there's high school varsity, there's college sports, there's professional, there's the NFL and there's the MLB and there's the NBA. So we have kids that aspire to do this, develop the skill set. But in this country, we don't have a lot of kids that play cricket. In fact, if the Department of Education decided we have a critical cricket shortage, the way we have an education crisis, there'd probably be a 20-year federally funded study on 
getting rid of the cricket shortage. By the time they come up with the cricket curriculum, they'd probably be working on the remedial cricket curriculum, and they would be dealing with the supply side of a problem. When in reality, in the culture of America, our, the business of America is business. If we really wanted millions of kids to be good at cricket, the way to do it is to get a few superstars of that sport, put them on all the networks that show great sports, and as soon as kids saw people being watched by millions of fans, making millions of dollars, but being really good at something, those kids would be inspired to work hard to be good at that. So I realized if, if I make a sport out of science and tech, but I don't have superstars of science and tech to put in front of these kids, it would be another version of the science fair. You know, the folding table in the basement of the middle school with the plastic paramecium on it that mom and dad have to go on Saturday morning <laughs> to watch with the kids. Then they all go home and turn on the Super Bowl. Well, which do you think these kids and their parents are going to, you know? So I, I said, all right, where can I find scientists, engineers that are every bit as excited by what they do every day, as proud of what they've accomplished every day as the superstars of, of other sports? Well, they're at the federal labs. They're at NASA. They're at Google. They're at Apple. They're at all the big companies that, that, that just reek of tech, but they're also at the Johnson and Johnson's and, and, and all the other companies that I do business with that I know are desperate for engineers that are full of all sorts of people that spend every one of their waking hours at work trying to solve critical problems. So I went to those CEOs and said, look, um, all of you giant companies are desperate for smart, well-educated people. You want a bigger pipeline, you want more people. But you know what? Look at what your sales and marketing people spend your money on. You're all the biggest supporters. Look at the ads that you buy at enormous fees for the Super Bowl and the World Series. And you're big supporters, proud supporters of the International Olympics. It's all over your products. Well, if, if you high-tech companies spend all your time telling kids what you're so super proud of is your sponsorship of all sorts of sports, where do you expect these kids to put their time and attention? And the same thing, I went to the big university presidents that I knew at the time and said, you know, the average kid sees universities, institutions of higher learning in our country as the Cornhuskers, the Razorbacks, the world. they think of your, your universities as farm teams to professional sports. It's one thing that the sports team should be appealing to these kids telling them how important sports is, but should our universities be appealing that way? And should our big corporations be using their sponsorship dollars to make superheroes out of entertainers and sports figures? In a free country, when you get the best of what you celebrate, if all we celebrate are those things, where are these young kids supposed to become inspired to become really smart, particularly in things as frustrating to learn as, as, as complex science and mathematics? So we've got to change uh, the way we, we, we look at this stuff. Well. At the end of that few meetings I had 35 years ago, I got about 25 companies, the ones I just mentioned and a few others, to say, all right, team, we will find within our company some young, enthusiastic scientists, engineers, inventors, and we'll lend them to you to be the after-school coaches, really the mentors, really not the coaches, but the mentors and the superstars uh, that will be visual proof to kids that not all scientists are middle-aged white males with frizzy hair and a German accent. You know, it's off in the corner out to destroy the world until they get punched out by, 
by, you know, the young star. I mean, you know, we have, our culture is so anti-science and technology in subtle ways, yet we do, the, the butt of the cheap joke is always those scientific nerds are always bad guys. And among kids even, even if a young girl in the movie or TV show is really, really smart, she's always depicted as not the attractive one, not the social one. You know, it's, it's great to make that the butt of a cheap joke, but it has consequences. And, and so I said to these companies, find me some, some of you young scientists and engineers. Hopefully some will be Latino, some will be African-American. Let's break every stereotype you got so we can appeal to all the kids in this country while they're still young enough that they can develop the passion to develop the skills to become the people they need to be, the people that your companies need, the people that this country needs. So again, jumping back then, about 25 companies said, all right, we'll lend you a few people, uh, but they're, they're not gonna become the teachers. You know, hey, you know, LeBron James doesn't teach uh, phys ed. Uh, and if you couldn't afford him to do that, and there aren't enough of them to go around to the 80,000 schools, but he's way more effective at creating a lot of people with skill sets at basketball than he could ever be if he was a teacher. He's there to inspire these kids. So I said to these companies, just lend us those guys, let them show up at these schools and work with the teachers. The teachers will be the coaches, the same way the, 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 the schools have the coaches for all the sports teams, but the only reason they get kids to join is because those kids see the, the professional athletes. So we'll, we'll let you guys uh, uh, show up with superstars of tech and we'll let the teachers be the coaches that help uh, uh, corral the energy of those kids once they're motivated and inspired to do it. So I, I created the kit. I made 25 kits. I gave them to 25 companies in January, I think of 1990 or 90, some early 90s and told them you're gonna appear in six weeks at a high school gym, bring your kids, bring your teacher, bring the coaches, bring the mentors, bring your corporate uh, leaders, and we're gonna have a double elimination tournament where your little robots, which that first year could fit in a, in a shoebox. We're gonna put them in a double elimination tournament on a Saturday morning and we'll, and we'll have fun. At the end of the day, every one of those 20 some odd teams had a great time. The kids learned a lot. The teachers were just blown away by the passion that, that erupted among these kids. The corporate folks were super enthusiastic that they were able to participate in changing these kids' attitudes so quickly. At the end of that day, I said to all the corporate types, hey, if I make the kit twice as big, not 10 pounds, I'll give you 20 pounds of junk next year to go build a bigger robot on a bigger field. Uh, will you all come back? 100% of them said, we'll be back. And I said, bring your friends. Well, they're all big companies. They had you know, connections. So the next year we had about 50 teams. The third January, it's now official. Every January we give out the kit. We always change the game. We make it bigger. We give them more cool stuff in the kits. By the third year, we had 100, then 200, then 500. By about the sixth or seventh year, we started doing regionals at the end of the six weeks so that mid-sized and small companies could participate without having to put people in airplanes and fly them to Manchester and putting them in hotels. Again, it's like sports. Kids can watch the Super Bowl or the World Series, but then they can play Little League in their own town. So some of my biggest sponsors started saying, all right, we'll do New Jersey. We'll do you know, Illinois. We'll do Texas. Well, by our 10th year, we had every single weekend in um, March, March Madness had at least two regionals. We had, I think, about 15 regionals. 
And uh, then a championship moved to the Georgia Dome. Uh, well, we kept growing and growing. And as of last year, here's some numbers. Last year, every weekend in March, we had something like 35 or 40 cities. In fact, the five weeks in March, I don't know if you can see this, but this was my schedule for last year's events. And we had 180 regions in March. We had 80,000 schools involved, 200,000 volunteer mentors from big and small companies, 200 universities sponsoring teams, giving away $80 million last year in scholarships. The scale of this thing, and it's almost entirely run still by volunteers, the scale of it is enormous. The impact it has on kids is phenomenal. And it, to me, it proved a few things. One is, as we started this conversation, inspiration is the most important aspect of, of what it takes for a person to excel at something. You have to be willing to work really hard, to stay focused, to run the risk that your robot fell apart, it caught fire. It, God knows what happens to these, these robots. But these kids have learned to deal with failure. They've learned the same things they learn when they go out and play a sport. But I think the most important things is, A, inspiration is the most critical aspect of getting somebody's attention. B, the other thing I learned is while everybody can complain and find the blame game about why so many, again, women and minorities aren't involved in science and tech, they're unwilling to understand it's a culture problem, not an education problem. There's no simple solution. But what I, the most important thing about first to me is it proved that if you create the right opportunity to bring together the parents, the teachers, the corporate sponsors, the volunteer mentors, and of course the kids, if you create the right environment for people to do the right thing, even though every one of those groups puts more into first than they could possibly think they could get out of it in, in, in one season, by the end of the season, they've all worked like maniacs and every one of them has transitioned to saying, I got more out of this than anybody could put into it. Uh, I mean, we have mentors now that they're kids. We've been at this more than 30 years. Dean, I got involved in 1995 when my kids were in high school. Now they've graduated. They've gone on to study engineering in many cases. They've got their own teams. Now I'm competing with them because I stayed with the school they were in long after they graduated. We have engineers that say, I, I've retired now from NASA or United Technologies or Boeing, but it just gives me more time. So I work more with FIRST. And, and whether they're the teachers, the parents, the mentors, once they've been involved with first, Dean, they, never, sorry. they never leave. We're out of time. Thank you for that. Dean Kamen, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for sharing FIRST Robotics. And thank you to our listeners for tuning the Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. And keep t- taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.